going to continue our Esther series this morning from chapter 6. If you brought your word with you, turn there. Uh, I want to kick off this morning with a story. I remember we just got through with Christmas. I remember one Christmas getting together with Shannon's family at the Cedar Creek Hotel. Anybody ever been there to that little water park with the grandkids or kids or whoever? And and Shannon's sister and her mom were, were talking, and I and my brother-in-law were talking, and we just got a little bit distracted. We hadn't seen each other in several months, and we're just catching up. And all of a sudden, I looked in the kiddie pool that we were beside, and Nora was there. We didn't have Caroline at that point. Nora was there, but Levi and Miles were not, okay? And they were five and two at the time. How many of you know what it's like when a kid goes missing? Okay. How many of you know particularly how frightening it is when a kid goes missing in a public place? Now, what about a public place that has lots of water? Okay. That's even even more frightening. You feel like it's like a Where's Waldo thing, you know? I mean, there are like a million and a half people at this place, you know? It just that's an actual count. That's not a dramatization. Little kids running around. Um, so I go uh, running through the water park looking for them. Within a relatively short period of time, by God's grace, I find both Miles and Levi. They're in the Lazy River, if you're familiar with that, um, which, oddly enough, is connected to the kiddie pool. Now, you tell me how that idea is sold in a pitch meeting for the design of that space. You know, seriously, can you imagine, like, who thought that was safe? Like, hey, I got an idea, Bob, you know. Oh. Why don't we connect the six-inch kiddie pool to the three-and-a-half-foot white water area? You know, who does that? But, but that's what they did, and that's where my kids ended up. And thank goodness they had life jackets on. I lock eyes with Miles when I first see him. He looks terrified at the predicament he's gotten himself into. The lifeguard is midair jumping in. Uh, to save him. Levi's already down the bend. He's just chillaxing on a tube with his hands behind his head. Um, I mean, can we just have a moment of vulnerability? How many of you have lost a kid at some point or another? Okay, just about everybody here, and then the rest are lying. Okay, that's the way this works. So your mind starts to go all kinds of places, doesn't it? I mean, you just... Imagine the worst, and 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 now let me transition uh, into this study of of Esther. Um, the Bible says that God has a covenant people, and when the Bible says um, the word covenant uses that language, it means to say that God is a father, and that He has lots of kids, and He's absolutely determined. Um, in both the Old Testament and, and New, in men and women, um, to adopt people into his family. It's just what he does. And, and over and over in, in the Old Testament in particular, he says, I will be your what? God, and you will be my what? People, right? This is what he says. Um, there's not really a, a democratic vote on that he's the dad and that's how he says it works and what we see in this beautiful story that we're taking in now um even though we were um 
we were privy to be interrupted for the Christmas season is that it doesn't matter how far the kids get away. It doesn't matter how deeply they get into trouble. It doesn't matter that evil is being plotted against them. It doesn't matter how immense the danger. God is a great father who loves his kids. And um, in, in the way that I went sprinting through that water park, this is, this is the tenacity with which God pursues his lost children. And he wants to hunt them down, and he wants to save them, and he wants to protect them. Why? Because, well, those are his children, okay? Esther, in this, in this book, God's, God's father's heart is for, in particular, his kids in Persia, who, to be honest, aren't the most obedient of all of God's children. I mean, the prophet had told them to to leave. The good children, like Nehemiah, had already left. Um, These ones that that didn't listen are staying behind in this very secular area. These are the ones who have wandered away. Um, These are the kids that spent time alone from the rest of the family. If you have a sibling like that, these are the ones who are in grave danger. Um, And two of these kids, we'll call them, um, what God said are Mordecai and Esther. If you're new to our series, I'll catch you up. Um, uh, ra- rather, I would I would ask you to catch up yourself by by taking a half hour this afternoon or this week to read the first five chapters. We're in chapter six now. It won't take you but a half hour or less. Um, but I'll quickly summarize um, the setting of the story. We're in the Persian Empire. Xerxes is on the throne. He's divorced his wife, uh, Queen Vashti. She didn't do what he said. Through an interesting, um, I'll use that word as a euphemism, it was kind of dark, it was kind of kind of gross. He does this tryout, this selection process, and, and somehow Esther, this orphan, um, whose parents have died, takes the place of Queen Vashti due to her uh, beauty. Um, Esther's parents, again, deceased, um, so she's raised by her first cousin, Mordecai. Um, King Xerxes doesn't know yet that Esther is not Persian. Um, he uh, doesn't know yet that she is a Jew. Meanwhile, an assassination plot against Xerxes' life was foiled by who? Do you remember? By Mordecai. Mordecai was the tattletale that got the king uh, safely away from an assassination plot. So he still has not received even an inkling of credit. And it's been four to five years by today's reading. Enter our evil villain into the story that we've looked at, Haman. Haman gets a promotion for reasons that we don't know. Um, Everybody bows to him, as was the custom of the day, um, except for Mordecai, Esther's first cousin. Haman is so mad, so livid, that he talked the king into murdering an entire race of people. This was absolutely genocide. Some scholars estimate um, could be upwards of 15 million or two and a half times the number of Jews that died in the Holocaust, that the king signs an edict to kill because of Haman's request, because of one guy who does not 
bow to him. And so Mordecai, who's still refusing to bow, even after this this edict goes out, it's announced to the Jews in advance what's going to happen to them. They're impending slaughter. They're terrified. People are weeping everywhere. Mordecai says to Esther, you've got to get involved. Because remember, she's now uh, a Jew in the palace. She's the king's wife. In our last Esther sermon, which was preached by Nick uh, Bansick in November, Esther invites the king and his right-hand man, Haman, to a banquet. One is the evil orchestrator of a plot to kill potentially 15 million people um, because he couldn't swallow that one Jew didn't bow to him. The other rules over the largest empire in the world. Um, and is unknowingly married to one of the 15 million. Okay? So, what's going to happen? Are all of God's covenant people going to be massacred? The time is is ticking. Is Mordecai going to die? Because at his wife's advice, Haman's wife's advice, Haman is also plotting to kill before the 15 million, Mordecai in particular. He can't wait. He's just got to get after him. So he builds a gallows on which to hang Mordecai in particular. He's yet to ask for permission, but he builds the gallows. He's a very powerful man. Um, So what's going to happen at this banquet? What's the great and benevolent father's role in the story, God's role? And is dad going to show up and protect his kids? Let's read verses 1 through 3 of chapter 6. On that night, the king could not sleep. And he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found out how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus, who is Xerxes. And the king said, What honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? And the young men who attended the king said, Nothing has been done. Now my first big idea this morning before we read further along is is this. Do not question the providence or activity of God. Assume it. Don't question God's activity in the world. Assume his activity in the world. As Christians, it ought to be our assumption that God is good. He knows the future. He does good work. He's involved. Does he work through miracles? Yes, he does. A friend of mine in Wapaka just got healed of a terminal illness. He's 30-something years old, completely miraculously healed. Awesome. God still does that. Um, Does he also work invisibly by the hand of his providence? Yes, he does. In fact, providence is a great theme of this book. There is no overt God activity in the whole book. His name isn't uttered once. There's no angel. There's no prophet. 
And in the most literal sense, there are no miracles. No water is turned to wine. Nobody's hand grows out that was shriveled. Um, None of that happens. But while we don't see God, we see the effects of God. Um, Yesterday, our family took a walk. We had six kids and two strollers on a county highway. Now, I don't, I don't expect you to give me a parenting reward, uh, award for that decision, okay? But we needed to get out of the house, so that's what we did. So we've got them bundled up. We get to the end of the driveway, and the wind is blowing from the west. So I make the decision. We need to go downhill toward the bridge, and we need to keep our backs to the wind, or this is going to be brutal. We're not going to last very long. So we did. We took a right. We headed east, um, and we kept our faces out of the wind. Um, on the way back, as we approached the top of the hill, our eyes were squinty, our noses were turning red, the windmill, once we got to the back, was whirling, we couldn't see the wind, but we could see the effects of the wind. We could feel the effects of the wind. Um, and so it is with the, with the providence of God. There are times that we open the word and we don't see a burning bush. And we don't see an angel, and we don't hear a prophet. And often in in hindsight, even in particular, we see, though, the effects of his nearness and his presence. Oh, that happened. Clearly, that was God behind that. That was his invisible hand. It looked murky, but he knew what he was doing, even though we didn't know what we were doing. And in our story... We see that the king has a sleepless night. I mean, he's got a lot of responsibility, doesn't he? I mean, just consider this. He's got hundreds of wives. Let's just take that alone at face value. I mean that, I mean that with no disrespect to every woman in the room. I'm just saying that is a lot of relationships to maintain and cultivate. Okay? Let's not even consider yet he him being over the most massive empire on the planet. I mean, this guy has a lot to stress about. But this time, it's not the stress that's keeping him awake. It's God's providence that's keeping him awake. And he says, bring to me all the sort of legal accounting of my kingdom. I mean, we don't know if he's trying to catch up on work. We don't know if, if, if this is like, if he's just bored out of his, like he, excuse me, if he's looking for something boring to help lull him back, like an ancient white noise maker, like, bring me all the legal stuff. <laughs> you know, he's trying to go back. We don't know what he's, exactly he's doing. We, we know that as he flips through the files, he sees, he realizes that a man named Mordecai saved his life some four to five years back when two men in his cabinet tried to slit his throat. And he asked the question, what did we ever do for this guy? I don't remember this. I don't, I don't recall this. And it will look like a coincidence Things like this, unless you know how God works. I'll tell you the word coincidence is the non-Christian's word for providence. Everything is a coincidence. Have you noticed that? The world says that was a coincidence. The believer says, no, that was God. Amen. 
And so they said, well, well, nothing was ever done for that guy. And the king knew that the ball had been dropped by his administration because historically, if you save the king's life, you got something. In fact, his brother, Xerxes' brother, history records, had his life saved by a guy. Um, they, there was an assassination attempt against his brother. His life was saved, and the guy got appointed governor. So nothing has been done um, un- until now for Mordecai. And what looks like some semblance of a conscience pops up in Xerxes, and he says, hey, the right thing to do is, is to do something for this man. And this sets in motion a series of events that we will read for the rest of our time in this amazing book um, that will save, ultimately, Mordecai's life and that of 15 million people. Again, don't question the providence of God. Assume it. There will be times when you don't know where God is or what God is doing. Think about it biblically. Put on the providential lenses and say, God, I don't know what you're up to here. I don't know where you are. I don't feel you, but I'm confident by faith that you're up to something. Help me to see it. See, faith is is trusting in the providence of God when we've yet to see the providence of God. We're believing that God is doing something. I'm learning. I want to tell you I'm learning this but I still have a long way to go in terms of of leaning into the providence of God. Um, I kind of hit bottom several months ago in faith regarding, in particular, our building initiative. Things were going amazing on the church end. Things were going nowhere on the community end. And I just felt so blue about fundraising and nothing was happening. I've yet to share this publicly, um, but out of nowhere, I got a phone call from uh, an individual who said, I'd like to meet with you, pastor. And I'm, my mind's going all the places that my mind went when Levi was missing in the water park. I mean, somebody asked to meet with you. You think, worst case scenario, what's this individual going to want or need or what? And so I meet, and, and after a, a, a round of kind of small talk and cordial uh, greetings and learning a little bit about each other, I said, well, what really brings you in today? And the individual immediately grabbed a checkbook out of the back pocket and said, I just feel like God asked me to help you build this church and wrote out a check for $80,000. $80,000. Isn't that amazing? And so um, I did not pass go or collect $200. I went to the bank and deposited that joker. You know what I mean? Hey, call to make sure these funds are available. Yes, they are. Hallelujah. Praise God. Um, just before Christmas, the same individual said, I'd like to meet again and, and wrote another check for $20,000. $100,000. So I have a lot to learn in leaning. I mean, I told you last October, there are three ways we're going to hit our bold commitment of a million dollars. One was by fulfilled commitments that already exist. Another was by, or I said four ways, new commitments. Third, increased commitments. We've seen all those happen. But fourth, I told you, do you remember? Miracles along the way. And that happened. I hadn't seen God 
But in that moment, I felt his effects. And I'd say to you today, take some time, journal, pray. It's a new year. Look back on your life and assume that the providence of God is a real thing and then reinterpret the data of your life according to that standard. In 05, I'll tell you this, I became a short-term member of what I thought was really an impossibility, but I didn't want to work for my dad at the time. Jesus, you know, wasn't accepted in his hometown. I thought that may be a bad deal for me, right? So I got on churchstaffing.com, which is essentially like a monster, but it's it's just for churches. It's for jobless clergy. That's what it's for, okay? And I got on this website, and I threw up a resume that was in 05, and within a few months of uploading that um, resume, I was hired by Northridge Church in Marshfield, and within a few months from, from that point, I met Shannon. Yes, the one I married, that Shannon. I met, actually, she doesn't remember that meeting. I, I do. She remembers a first meeting months later, but I recall that. And within four years of creating a username and password on churchstaffing.com, we planted together the Mill Church, okay? Was the recommendation from I can't remember who to churchstaffing.com coincidental? I mean, is that all that it was? Was just some big coincidence? Or was it God's providence? I encourage you to look back at your life like that and take some time to really consider the weaving in and out of our lives by a sovereign creator, God. Amen? Don't question his work. Assume his work. The second big idea, and the last one I'll leave you with, is found in verses 4 through 12. And the king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace. This is the guy that wants to kill all of God's people. He's been given the legal auspice to do so by the king's signet ring. And the guy who's also wanting to impatiently murder Mordecai, who had saved earlier the king's life. Verse 4b. He's coming in to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had already prepared for him. Do you see... In the timing of Haman's entrance to the king's presence, God's providence. It is all over this. This story is remarkable. Haman is walking in to tell the king of the largest empire on the planet who's already given him permission to kill 15 million people that he'd like to pluck one of those guys out early and put him on a big pole and impale him. 75 feet in the air, historians tell us, publicly displaying Mordecai for not bowing to him. And Haman has loathed him ever since. He's put time into this little construction project. He's orchestrated it. It's now complete. He's excited about it. He walks into the king, verse 5. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there, king, standing in your court. And the king said, well, let him come in. 
So Haman came in and the king said to Haman. Now notice that Haman is there to do the speaking. He's not there to listen to what the king has to say. But because of the timing of God, the providence of God, the king speaks first. And Xerxes says, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman starts getting giddy. Because he thinks that the king is talking about who? Haman. And Haman said to himself inwardly, whom would the king like to honor more than me? This story could not get any sweeter. It just couldn't. Listen to this irony. Verse 7, and Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set, and let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials, and let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on horseback through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. And then the king said to Haman, hurry, take the robes and the horse, just as you've said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse and he dressed Mordecai (laughs) he dressed him. He dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. And then Mordecai returned to the king's gate. But Haman hurried to his home mourning and with his head covered. Here's the big idea. Are you ready? God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Can you hear the egocentrism in what Haman is positing? Can can you hear His self-love exuding in what he's approaching the king with. He wants to throw a parade for only one person. That's what Haman wants to do. Like, can you imagine a parade with only one float? Seriously. Can you imagine that? Like, who would go see that? But that's what Haman wants to do for himself. And not, listen to this self-absorption. Not any one one robe would do. It needed to be the the one that the king had worn. Not not the finest of stallions of a military officer would do. It had to be the one that the king himself rode on. I mean, do you see just a hint of arrogance in this man? Haman thought the king was asking the question, Haman, what would you like? How would you like to be honored, Haman? And he responded with a parade for me. 
I mean, hypothetically, king, if this is the way you should honor that potential person. And the king says, great, great idea. Go do that for Mordecai. And Haman, just think about this. He enters the room asking for Mordecai's crucifixion. He leaves the room organizing Mordecai's parade. I hope you find God's brilliant humor in this story. It's it's awesome. I mean, God is just like up in, this is funny. He he is inviting the angels around and saying, hey, y'all, watch this. This is hilarious. This is like punked. Have you ever seen that show? On steroids. This is like the, like that stuff that Sasha Baron Cohen is doing in, in his new uh, documentary, This is America, I think it's called, or Who is America? It makes that stuff look absolutely tame. This is one of the most ironic and shocking and I would submit hilarious chapters in all of the scriptures. Haman is walking Mordecai and his horse through the city as his cheerleader. Mordecai in the front, let me hear you grunt. You know that one? This is what he's doing for Mordecai. I just love this story. So I want to wrap up a few minutes by talking about humility. And you're right, I am not qualified. But none of us are. We all struggle with various forms of pride. It manifests itself in very different ways. So I'll just be the senior hypocrite in the room and and delight in an opportunity to talk to you about it for just a minute or two. James 4, 6, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humility literally means, and I'll quote it, knowing your place. Those three words, knowing your place. The problem with Haman is, is that he does not know his place. He doesn't. He's the guy who always wants to be up a level in the organization, not because he's the best fit for it, but because there's more glory at the next level. He's gotten himself to the right hand of the king of the most powerful empire on planet Earth, And it's still not good enough for him. So you know what he wants? He wants more. He just wants more. Are you like that? Either you don't know your place or you won't accept your place. Are you like Haman? Being in an organization isn't okay. You need to be at the top of that organization. Seeing others succeed just really doesn't do it for you. You have to be the one who succeeds. See, that's Haman's 
problem. The only thing he didn't ask for was the king's wife. Did you notice that? I mean, that's it. He wants to be, other than that, high and exalted and rich and powerful as he possibly could be. So I want to ask you just a few questions. I'm going to pause between each one. Think about these slowly. And I'll begin. Do you crave attention? This is for self-reflection. Do you crave attention, honor, recognition, reward, and get angry when overlooked? Just think about that question. Do you crave attention, honor, recognition, reward, and get angry when overlooked? Number two, do you become jealous or critical of others who succeed? Just take an inventory of your heart right now. Do you become jealous or critical of others who succeed? Number three, do you always have to win? Do you always have to win? Number four. And this is a a twist. Do you lack ambition for a fear of failing? Remember I said pride takes different forms. Sometimes pride can be cowardice. Because you want to succeed so badly that you never try anything. I'm not going to try that because what if I fail? I'm too proud to fail, therefore I'm not going to try. Number five, do you have a pattern of lying about or hiding your failures? I have a friend like this who's who's since changed by the grace of God, but used to lie about everything, make up stuff about himself because he was too proud for people to know the real him. Number six, do you have a hard time fully acknowledging that you're wrong? Do you launch into the most subjective of explanations with the most subliminal of excuses? Or do you just flat out say simply, I'm wrong. Please forgive me. Number seven. Do you have conflicts perpetually with other people? You may be prideful. Are you having a conflict with me right now? Number eight. Do you honestly feel, and none of us would ever say this, but do you honestly feel that you are superior to most people?
Number nine, do you tend to lean more toward an attitude of entitlement? This is what I deserve. Or an attitude of gratefulness. This is what I've been given. If you'd like me to email you that list, I'd be happy to do so. In prelude to next week, I want to read, read excuse me, the remaining verses of this chapter. There's just two of them. And Haman told his wife Suresh and all of his friends everything that had happened to him that day. And then his wise men and his wife Suresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. And while they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. We're going to see what happens at the feast next week. Um, didn't intend on saying this, but Notice Haman told his, he's communicating with Zeresh. Have you seen that? He communicates with his wife. He has a better relationship with his wife than Xerxes has with the queen. She said at one point, it's been months since I've seen the king. You can have a great marriage and a great family and beautiful children and still be a prideful man. Lord, check our hearts. Help us, God, to pursue humility. It's not a destination. We won't ever land there. I've, I've now become humble. Lord, it's a, it's a direction. It's a trajectory. And I just pray that all of us would chase humility and give glory not to ourselves, but to you, Lord, as vehemently as you have chased us, your kids, when we were lost. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.